this week, we're very excited to have Professor Balkan Devlin with us, uh, who's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. Welcome, Balkan. Happy to have you here. Uh, nice, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You're also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a super forecaster for good judgment. Yourself and you've been living many years in Denmark and now Canada. Could you tell our listeners uh, listeners a bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so I was born in Turkey, grew up there, um, and after 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 university, I went to the United States uh, for my PhD for my graduate work. Um, I did a PhD in political science uh, from University of Missouri, uh, and then I went back uh, to Turkey, worked uh, in Turkey for about 10 years, um, and then you know uh, I'm from Izmir, um, it's a town in, in the western coast um, of, of Turkey. Uh, that's where I'm from anyway, and I worked there. And then I had to to, to University of Copenhagen, um, and which I, I was a visiting professor before. So I went there um, and started working, and, and, and I also um, developed more relations with Canada. Now um, I'm moving to Canada, and I will uh, start um, after August as a director uh, for the Center in uh, Modern Turkish Studies at Carleton University. Um, so that's kind of my, 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 my work. The, and I'm also affiliated with the McDonald Laurier Institute, a, a, a prominent uh, public policy think tank. dual sort of Turkish and uh, Western Canadian and Danish uh, citizenship or background. I think that's especially interesting for our listeners also that are most of them coming from Europe, more Northern Europe also. Uh, and uh, when it comes to Turkey, it's nice to have someone who is Turkish here to speak about uh, Turkish uh, security policy, to Turkish foreign policy. Myself, I'm very interested in hearing about uh, Erdogan and his presidency. <laughs> I, I studied uh, migration uh, policy making. I'm also a political scientist. Yes. So uh, I'm very interested in what happened recently just before the, the corona pandemic. Uh, before all of the countries closed, before the borders closed completely, Erdogan sort of had uh, Europe in a gridlock, uh, saying, if you don't agree to my uh, needs for accommodation in terms of migration and uh, 3.5 million Syrian migrants in Turkey, then I will let them uh, go to Europe with Merkel. So he had a very special relationship with Merkel before the pandemic. That's why this is uh, very interesting for me today to talk about, to, to hear your opinion about Turkey. We're not going to talk about migration, but sort of giving a frame for why it's uh, relevant today uh, when it comes to the fact that we're starting to open the borders again. Yeah. Will Erdogan, Erdogan have that bargaining power again? Uh, and then from on Marta's behalf, she's very interested in knowing more about security policies and the future of the Turkish-NATO uh, relationship. So should we start with Turkey then? Yeah. Describe. So, uh, can you please outline uh, for us a bit of Turkey's current position in the Middle East and on the world scene? How does Erdogan want to portray himself, and how does Turkey view itself right now in the world scene? What's its role, and what does what's its ambitions? Very, very good question. Uh, and you know, we can definitely spend a few hours on that talking on it. But I think uh, there are two things to point out. How um, first off. 
Erdogan over the years wants to sort of uh, position himself, both domestically but also regionally, uh, and what is actually sort of the position on the ground. So those are not necessarily the same positions. Uh, what he wants is not necessarily what is actually happening, necessarily. Um, so when you look at it, particularly going back to Ahmed Davutoglu, the former uh, foreign minister and later uh, prime minister, uh, sort of generally seen as the architect of um, uh, of, of AKPs, the, the government, government parties, um, foreign policy doctrine. Um, he did have this vision of Turkey as what he calls a central state, uh, sort of a larger, not, not only a regional power, but sort of a, a, a big player uh, in, in all the regions that Turkey is, is situated. I mean, geographically, if you think about it, where Turkey is, is, is situated, it's very hard really to sort of uh, categorize Turkey because it's, you know, it is, it, is, it is in the Eastern Mediterranean, it is in the Black Sea, it is in the Balkans, it is in the Caucasus, it is in the Middle East. You know, um, it, is, it is sitting within these, uh, within, the, uh, within the intersection of these of multiple uh, regions. And most of these regions are highly sort of uh, conflict prone, uh, to, put it, uh, to put it mildly. And um, so that's uh, what Davutoglu initially, and supposed with Erdogan's buying into it, uh, saw is, is Turkey as you know leveraging this position to play a, a, a much larger role, and what they saw initially to do it is to do via uh, you know expanding the Turkey's influence uh, with its neighbors, um, and the Middle East, particularly the Levant, uh, played a major role, in that. and then the whole thing about zero problems with neighbors, which is sort of a fantasy uh, foreign policy uh, for uh, for Ahmed Davutoglu. Um, was about we do set up you know good economic relations, develop political uh, uh, relationships, particularly with, with the countries such as uh, Syria, Lebanon, um, uh, Iraq, etc., um, and then just use that as a sort of a springboard to to leverage Turkey's influence over there. It is sometimes which um, year? Which year are we talking now? Is it? Recent so, or? so, so no, mostly what we're talking about at this stage is is the Levant, so the Eastern yeah. Mediterranean, right? So starting from Syria down to Lebanon, um, Israel, Palestine, uh, up to Egypt. But um, is this that, is this the predecessor of Erdogan's uh, Ahmed? Uh, you mentioned Ahmed Davutoglu. He's yeah. the predecessor of Erdogan, or he? No, is... he he was his uh, foreign affairs uh, advisor initially, and then became the foreign minister of Turkey from two thousand five. Up to to uh, 2009, I'm sorry, 2009 to 2015. Okay. Um, and then he was the prime minister, and uh, after after Erdogan became uh, president. Okay. And then he they, they got to get into a fight. Uh, Erdogan is not a guy. <laughs> so so today he is uh, what's his role today for Erdogan? Oh, no, he he now he he's, he's out of the party. He's mm -hmm. out of the power. He, he's uh, he has this new small political party. He's in the opposition. Okay. Uh, uh, but, so in you know, the opposition, okay. Sort of, so yeah, so the plans for the Levant and for the Middle East. This yes. was when Ahmed was uh, in power, right? Yes. Yeah, so it was. I mean, it was basically both. I mean, it's it, Ahmed Davutoglu was uh, is a, a professor of international relations, so he has these, these ideas about how things are supposed to work. So he was sort of the architect in terms of Erdogan's foreign policy behind it. Um, uh, but of course, it's not necessarily only dependent on him. Um, uh, the, the difference is that, that Ahmed Davutoglu is a much more ideological sort of uh, character in the sense that he has this sort of uh, very sort of grandiose visions of what 
Turkey's role should be in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And he d- described that as sort of the rule maker uh, in, in, in the Middle East. It's, it's not others. Turkey is not only a regional power, but should be treated as a regional hegemon. Okay. And, and oh, thus yeah. uh, shape the emerging order, right? He, he calls it order maker, ruler maker. And Erdogan sort of bought into that as well. Um, is that connected they, 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 also to, are they using the historical past of the Ottoman Empire to explain yeah, that why? That also is, is definitely one part of it, mm-hmm. uh, especially for uh, for Dogutu. But that's the thing I want to come back uh, to what I said in the, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, that's their vision, which does not necessarily have uh, a correspondence on the ground. So it was more about the sort of illusions of Ahmed Dogutu, in a way, to, to argue that because of historical past, Turkey would have a natural political and cultural clout. Mm, naturally, that Turkey would uh, take that role. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But that's not necessarily the case. Mm. Uh, there is a lot of pushback, and that became very clear with the, uh, you know, the Arab uprisings and the uh, Arab Spring, and particularly with the start of the Syrian, uh, Syrian war. Now, that sees a, a change in, in Turkey's uh, position. Up until that time, the focus was on mostly soft power. Um, on, on economic relations, free trade, sort of uh, foreign investment, that kind of thing. And that's the mechanism in which uh, Erdogan and, and, and Ahmed Oudal tried to expand Turkish influence. Uh, what became clear uh, with the sort of the Syrian civil war is that that the, the political clout that they believe they have uh, did not actually materialize. Really? Um, and then... And, and then what happened is, of course, is an emergence of, of various security issues on, on Turkey's borders. Um, for Tur- from Turkish perspective, two of them are, are crucial. One is the emergence, particularly on, on northern Syria, uh, a, 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 so sort of semi-autonomous uh, Kurdish uh, entity that uh, have close ties with PKK mm-hmm. uh, in Turkey, which Turkey and the European Union and a lot of others uh, perceive as as as, sees as as a terrorist organization, and 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 Turkey sees that sort of a staging ground for an organization that has been fighting with Turkey for forty years uh, as as a as a very fundamental national security threat. Mm. Um, add to that is the emergence of ISIS um, in the same in the same area. Um, that again carried out, and people do tend to forget that, but ISIS uh, carried out. Uh, several uh, suicide bombing attacks in Turkey, um, including the uh, the ones um, that you know, overall kill over 300 people, um, the the bombings in, in Istanbul airport, yeah. the uh, the bombings in Ankara that killed over 100 people. That is, that still is the biggest uh, terrorist attack. <clears throat> I'm sorry, in in, in Turkey's uh, history, etc. etc. So uh, you have what what ends up happening is is, is uh, this this sort of Islamic jihadist. Um, uh, terror group uh, uh, forming and carrying attacks right on the border in, 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 in Iraq and in, 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 in uh, Syria. And also this uh, other sort of Kurdish entity that has very close ties with the, uh, the PKK, the, the Kurdish group in Turkey that is Beijing war. So Turkish position then started from 2014-15 shifted to, to security and hard power. And, and, and thus uh, what we see today is a lot less about uh, Turkey's uh, sort of soft power and, and, and clout, rather than 
um, much more focus on, on hard power. But is, the, is, is that like one of the reasons why uh, Erdogan, prior to Corona, said, okay, you have to accommodate to the EU, to, uh, to, to Brussels, you have to accommodate my needs. Like, I want to go into Syria and I want to make a corridor for the refugees so that we can place them there. Also because he wants to have a stake in Syria. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the world don't agree. Merkel said, okay, maybe, you know, because she also needs to cooperate with, with the Erdogan in a healthy way, somewhat healthy way. So uh, is, that, is that also why he's making such tough, tough demands, sort of sitting with, the, with the, the door to Europe for, you know, millions of, of refugees, which would be a huge, huge problem uh, for Europe? Uh, it's, I think it's part of it. I mean, part of it is sort of the broken promises uh, kind, of, uh, kind of structure, I think. The, the whole idea with the EU, the, the whole agreement that was signed back in um, 2015, 16, mm-hmm. um, 16, I think, yeah. uh, w- was a terrible idea at any rate. I mean, um, when it came out uh, was, or at least what the optics are, is, is like, you know, okay, we don't like to work with you anyway, but here's some money and keep these people and because we don't want it. Um, because and, and also the half million, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a trouble. And, And Erdogan saws that as a way of leverage uh, as well, saying, "Okay, oh, you really don't want them. Uh, all right, so we'll we'll do this as a as as as, as a mechanism of leverage." Um, right. And of course, there's also the domestic component of that too, in the sense that if you think about it, uh, with with other other refugees, um, you know, Afghans and Iranians and, and others, uh, the, the the sort of estimated number of refugees in Turkey is, is around four four and a half million people. Um, So we're talking about an 80, 80 million uh, population, you know, 5% um, mm. a new influx uh, of, of people that are coming from completely different backgrounds. Um, and that created, um, that created uh, a, a lot of domestic backlash as well in Turkey towards Syrians particularly, but also other, other refugees. So he wanted to sort of... Um, deal with that pressure and try to show that he's doing something mm, to right. deal right. with the domestic pressure. Yeah, because, I mean, I promise we will not talk about migration, and here we are <laughs> going into migration. This is my fault. But uh, the thing is that I think, personally, I think that the migration deal that was made between in 2016 with uh, Turkey was uh, in nowhere, no way uh, a viable solution. It was just talk. And that's what we see today. But that's not the topic for today. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> Could we uh, go back a bit of what you said about sure. uh, one of the problems that, or Turkey as well as many neighboring countries is facing the rise of ISIS and how yes. and the shift then to more hard security. How has Turkey handled that? Um, the ISIS in Turkey, what's been the government's approach to it? Uh, could you go a bit more in detail? So, Sure. Um, I think there, there, there are sort of different options. I think um, uh, Turkey c- came to a realization that, that ISIS is actually a significant security threat quite late. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the primary reasons is that the sort of the, tri- the, the threat uh, prioritization was different, right? So uh, what Turkey sort of perceives as initially was the emergence of, of PKK-affiliated uh, YPG-SDF uh, in Syria as the primary threat yeah. uh, because it's a group that Turkey has been funded for 40 years, um, over, uh, <laughs> over, um, over, uh, you know, 
40,000 people died and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the, the focus on the security bureaucracy is particularly and continues to be um, the, 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 the PKK issue and, and, and its affiliates in Syria. Um, but the, the attacks in Turkey make it quite clear that this whole sort of uh, ISIS uh, organization and, 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 and recruitment within Turkey became a significant threat, uh, that they do come in back and forth from Syria and, and realize that their presence in northern Syria and in Iraq is a security issue, is a terrorism, terrorism issue, terrorism threat to Turkey as well. So that came, I would say, by 2016, 2017, okay, a bit later, rather um, than sort of this whole focus on initial initial stuff. So what Turkey ended up having to do is, is have to fight, in that sense, on multiple fronts. You know, it's opposing YPG, you know, PYD in, in Syria, at the same time trying to deal with ISIS, at the same time trying to support what they call the moderate rebels, but you know, that's a whole different uh, uh, position to talk about. So opposing Iran, opposing Russia, opposing Syria, opposing ISIS, opposing um, sort of the American-backed um, SDF. So there's actually nobody that they can work with. And and that created a whole different dynamic. So when it comes to, you, you said that opposing Russia, when it comes to uh, Russia, but also yeah. Iran, uh, I read that Turkey does not mess with those countries. <laughs> that, so it's <laughs> historically the ottomans ruled over most of the neighboring countries yeah. but never the russian empire so what is the as a as a turkish uh, as a turkish person what is the perception of russia and turkey today i think it is interesting because you know historically what you said is is, is true turkey and russia you know Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire um, had but 12 wars uh, throughout history since uh, 17th century. Um, you know, we, I think we lost about six of them. <laughs> uh, three of them is, is a win and then three is a draw. Okay. But in essence, Ottoman Empire, if you look at sort of the, the entities that the, the Ottomans fought most, the Russian Empire is number one. Right? So there's a historical sort of um, relationship there that is not necessarily friendly. Huh. Uh, this has been one of the reasons is that both, both countries claim um, sort of influence uh, in the same regions, right? The Balkans, the Black Sea, mm. the Caucasus, mm. right? So the, the, the fighting over 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 same same same, same places. Um, but there are periods of cooperation with Turkey and Russia, right? Right after the Russian Revolution in 1917, particularly in the 1920s, as the new republic is being established, um, there are there were sort of a very close relationship because they were both seen as anti-imperialist, um, fighting against the British and, and, and whatnot. So there are periods, but then the Cold War, you know, we're NATO, they're out there. There's a whole again tensions and, and, and whatnot. So it's, it was always up and down, up and down. Um, if you look at now how people perceive Russia. I would say that um, the uh, it depends on who are you asking. It is not as what you would sort of expect the, the, the level of animosity, the same level of animosity you would expect given the sort of the historical relation and, and not, 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 not great. Um, part of it is economic, part of it is, is tourism, energy. So there's a lot more sort of economic interdependence mm -hmm. uh, that, that kind of sort of uh, ducked it down. And there is also... Sort of groups within Turkish political sort of circles, um, what they call Eurasianists and others, 
um, who sees cooperating with Russia as a way to balance the United States. Ah, oh, right. So that sort of anti-Americanism is among particular uh, groups. And funny enough, this is true for quite left-wing groups as well as quite right-wing groups. Oh, really? uh, that one of the things that sort of unites those sort of fringe elements is is anti-Americanism, um, mm. and and they tend to see Russia as a, a as, as as a partner in that sense, as a way to balance. Not so much because they like to sort of Putin's regime and whatnot, but because it could be seen as a, as, as a balancing act. As a balancing and, 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 and if you look at the political level, sort of Erdogan's policies, or Turkey's policies with Russia, tends to follow that, right? It's, 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 it's about compartmentalizing Turkey's relations with Russia. If you look mm-hmm. at it, there are good uh, economic relations. There's a big dependence on Turkish side uh, uh, to Russian natural gas. Um, though Turkey tries to sort of decrease that by, by investing more in LNG and other things. And, and and the maybe we could come to that, but the whole sort of Turkish moment in Libya is 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 partly driven with that concerns about energy dependency in Russia. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Turkey did oppose or continue to oppose the illegal annexation of Crimea, okay. uh, support the rights of uh, Tatars there, um, and Turkey and Russia are on opposite sides in in, in Syria. I mean, mm, um, right, but mm. they have to cooperate in in one way. They have to work together with because of the facts on the ground. That Turkey is there physically uh, with soldiers and its proxies, but so is the Russians. So right? with and, and with um, the with Turkey uh, entering Syria, we don't know exactly what's happening there. But uh, what about uh, these talks about the new Ottoman Empire? I know that in the Middle East, many countries have not been worried, but they have been uh, discussing this. As in, what what does Erdogan want? Uh, does Turkey want to reestablish itself politically and economically more strongly, for example, in the Balkans? Um, I mean, a Turkish products economy is everywhere in the Middle East, in East Europe, not so much in West Europe, maybe, but textile and food and everything. So the economy is strong and reaches many places. What about ideology? What about even maybe even religion? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, so the, the neo the neo Ottoman sort of framing is, I think, too simplification. There is a, actually a great article by uh, Nicholas Danforth, I think, uh, published like last week on on war on the rocks. Um, that sort of uh, the title is uh, why we should not use the word neo Ottoman. Uh, okay. Uh, describing traditional policy. I mean, sort of, there's a bunch of historical reasons why that's actually not a good description and stuff. And I would argue that, if anything, um, uh, I mean, all those policies that were initially dubbed as Neo-Ottoman was more pan-Islamist rather than Neo-Ottoman. Pan-Islamist? Uh, yeah, uh, okay. rather than, uh, rather than Neo-Ottoman. So it was more about... Sort of to join the, to the region, yeah. the region yes, exactly, uh, under exactly, the Islamic religion. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, Adam's policies are not necessarily... Palestinians. Uh, they are more sort of pragmatists, okay. uh, in the sense that it's sort of stress combines a particular understanding of Turkish nationalism that is heavily infused with uh, religion, particularly Sunni Islam, um, and, a, and a specific sort of projection of that. But but that's more on the rhetorical level. So what is when you look at what is being done on the ground? It's a lot more pragmatic and mostly about economic relationships. Like, you know, Turkey's, who are, who are Turkey's best friends in the Balkans? It's, it's, it's Serbian government and, 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 and the digit, right? Um, so uh, 
the, the, the way sort of uh, what's the what's Turkey's best relations in Iraq is not the central government. It's the you know Iraqi Kurdistan and and, and, and the regional government there, right? Yeah. Um, so it, why? Because there are strong economic relations and investments and so on. So, so um, it is more about I think I would I would still argue that the, 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 the attempts were particularly with regards to the Balkans and the Caucasus and other places, is more economic. Uh, there were initial attempts, I think, for political influence, and that's one of the sort of reasons why Turkey wanted to very quickly support the Arab Spring and, and sort of the, the Mohammed Morsi regime uh, back in uh, back in Egypt okay. and mm. you know, hope to hope mm. to have yeah. sort of a, a uprising in Syria but, as well, hoping that political regimes or political parties that so, are similar in, 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 in its Islamist look would come there and that would have some political clout. Okay, but so that, that would, dream has been crushed very quickly. That would create the pan, uh, pan, uh, I don't know, Islamic uh, state by, yeah. so, for example, supporting Mursi in Egypt. Was that a whole? Yes. That's why, is that why Turkey and Egypt today don't enjoy the best yeah. uh, relationship? I mean, when you look at it, whoever, uh, uh, Turkey doesn't really have any friends in, in the Middle East at this stage. Um, if you look at it, I mean, Qatar is perhaps the only exception. Okay. Uh, in terms of having good relations, um, though there are more and more sort of signs or, or, or talk about normalizing relations with Israel um, as well at this stage. But uh, when you look at it, you know Syria is not there, Iraq is not there, Iran is always you know a cold peace at best times. Uh, Egypt, no, definitely on the opposite side. Saudi Arabia, the same story. United Arab Emirates, the same story. Uh, so that sort of plan, sort of political vision in which um, Erdogan's AKP is at the center of this linked uh, political Islamist movements, uh, stretching from Turkey to, to Syria, to Lebanon, to, 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 to the Palestinian territories, to Egypt, falls down apart. I mean, that's that's the dream that was shattered, and uh, definitely by, by 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, so the current project is a lot more pragmatic, right? So. It is more about, uh, it's a lot more defensive in the sense that trying to sort of maintain um, uh, core security interests, especially as it relates to the Middle East. And we could see the same thing with Libya as well. Okay. And um, seeing that Turkey's uh, policy is more being pragmatic, and um, I just wanted to shift a bit back to Russia and also how sure. that affects its relationship with NATO, because Turkey's been a member since 1952, as we know. Not always the easy, it hasn't always been an alliance or a relationship that's been uh, uh, the best for both sides or difficult, oh. if we can say it that way. Um, especially now, recently we saw in the last NATO summit in December, uh, Turkey's decision to buy Russia's S-400 missiles uh, sort of casts a shadow over the entire summit. Um, it's continuous relationship and interdependency on economy uh, is making it also difficult, and many allies are concerned about the lack of democracy, if you could put it that in yeah. uh, in Turkey. How do you see the future of NATO-Turkish uh, uh, relations? Um, with regards to Turkey and, and, and Russia and NATO and the future of Turkish and NATO relations, we had, a, uh, well, it looks like ages ago now, but actually in the beginning of March, um, uh, have, a, have a workshop, a forecast, a sort of foresight workshop, um, uh, with people from from the Canadian um, uh, defense and security uh, community uh, that looks at 
at the sort of the, 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 the next five years in, in Turkish uh, NATO relations. Sort of business as usual, uh, modeling through, basically uh, continuing uh, tensions with, uh, with NATO uh, allies and Turkey on specific security issues, but without necessarily resolving one way or another, in the sense that uh, without there's a clear break on, on Turkey's part to leave NATO or whatever, or there is a reconciliation and everything goes goes well. Um, but that this, um, this 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 agreement, this tension remains within within a certain boundary, right? It goes up and down, up and down, without crossing a threshold that makes it impossible for the alliance to function. So that's one. Thing. That's one one thing we wanted to sort of come up with the scenario. And and the group there sort of thought that this is the most sort of likely. Uh, development in the next five years. The two other um, scenarios focus on the two other two opposites. One on the end is like the break or the breakup, mm -hmm. um, and that is, you know, tensions boil up to, to to a degree, or there is a military sort of uh, incident that involves different NATO uh, uh, members, say in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, it could be with uh, with Greece, it could be with France, it could be with others uh, because of say. Uh, natural gas exploration or something, or, or a military incident in Syria that involves an American soldiers or others, um, that would lead to a, a complete breakup uh, between Turkey and NATO. And uh, that's is generally perceived as to be very, very, very unlikely, uh, partly because um, there is no incentive in both, both sides to, to break up that relationship. And, and, and also the fact that there is no mechanism in which um, you can force out a number state uh, from it. The other one is what we call sort of bringing back to the fold um, is this optimistic uh, utopian uh, scenario in which you know democratic backsliding stops in Turkey, things change and became sort of more opened up and and and, and, and you know various political and, and human rights abuses uh, have been corrected. Turkey sort of scaled back its cooperation with Russia. Uh, the allies also sort of take Turkey's security concerns in Syria into account and come to compromise, etc. So good old days, we're all back friends and, and love each other. And so on. Uh, that is also unlikely uh, for a variety of reasons, because some of these factors are seen as, as the structure. Uh, but Turkey, uh, particularly with regards to security issues, for Turkey, the issue security in Syria, uh, both the presence of PKK, you know, uh, YPG, PYD, uh, is seen as an existential threat, while the main concern for the rest of NATO members are, are, are terrorism threats and, to a degree, refugees yeah. emerging um, from the conflict. So it's a, it's, a, it's a threat that is seen far away. Before Turkey, it's a very immediate concern, and that's not, not overlapping. Uh, and of course, the other one is the, the democratic backsliding debate. How can you reverse that? That's a, that's a very tough thing. Uh, as long as you know, um, Erdogan stays in power, that seems very unlikely, and thus that will be always this tension. Um, so uh, the sort of the, the future is is seen in that workshop as uh, more of the same, and in occasional tensions with certain compromises, as we see with the refugee issues or, or other things being reached, uh, but a constant sort of um, pressure on NATO decision making and a constant sort of friction. Um, as as the allies sort of compete uh, with each other, and we saw that in the last um, in the last summit, yeah. Turkey sort of blocked um, uh, initially, and then sort of relented, but initially blocked the announcement of a, of a defense plan for the eastern flank, 
uh, for the Baltics and others. Uh, partly arguing that, well, I'm, I'm going to veto this unless you also support my position in the southern flank and in the Sicilia, right? We will see more of those sort of linkage politics, a more uh, transactional relations between Turkey and the rest of NATO allies, uh, and less a sense of community. And okay. I You know a lot about the the forecasting of NATO and definitely Turkey's role there. What about moving into risk and leadership, where yes. you are uh, one of your other areas? Uh, how do we predict uh, the effects of Corona? How do we predict what's uh, next uh, now in 2020, almost 2021? Surprisingly enough, time is, is going very fast. In quarantine. Uh, in quarantine also. <laughs> So uh, can you tell us a bit uh, briefly about uh, what is risk and leadership and wh- how is how is that uh, a field and, and your field also? So for 2020, what's your forecast then for the next uh, months? <laughs> on what? On, uh, okay, what are the major crises we will see? What's happening to the economy? Uh, will countries perhaps close up completely if there's a new wave? What what are the ma- major risks we need to think about? Of course, you are not a fortune teller, but uh, from your perspective as as a forecaster. Okay, so I think two things are important, and I'd like to take this opportunity, in a sense, to sort of maybe um, correct some of the uh, misconceptions about what what, what what forecasting is or should be. Um, uh, it is it's mostly about assigning subjective probabilities to well-defined questions. So. It's not about really, you cannot go and say that, oh, this would happen. Who does? Um, and actually, the people who claim to know these will be the major things that happen is mostly, I'm sorry to say, bullshit. Uh, you. Um, um, what you need to do is to say, to ask a, a, a very specific, measurable question and then track the accuracy of the prediction. So things like, when will we see... Um, Uh, or what will be the sort of percentage difference uh, between uh, December 2019 and December 2020 with uh, regards uh, to GDP growth? Or uh, what will be the number of people visiting Oslo, the difference? So it's very specific calculations that a forecaster does. That's, that's what so, a forecaster does. It's completely specific and it has nothing to do exactly. with sort of political science. It's about no, it is it is political science, but it is it is using a variety of things to actually make a, measurements, a probabilistic judgment huh. about a specific thing that you can measure. Otherwise, it's just basically talk. It's what we what I would call Davos talk, you know, yeah. meaningless nonsense um, in the sense of of vague verbiage. May could perhaps but there is a great example of that in a foreign affairs very recently. They asked a bunch of people uh, like this week, um, you know. They make this statement and say whether they agree with it and how confident they are with that statement. China will surpass the United States after COVID. That's a terrible question. You know, it's a terrible question because what do you mean by surpass? What are we talking about? Yeah. More people joining BRI, um, more votes in the UN, people leaving American alive. What are we talking about? Who knows? Uh, when? There is. There has to be a time scope. Today, tomorrow, in two, in two years. When? are we talking about? And, and people, of course, make all sorts of predictions. And you see that how they are distributed. Some say, no, 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 completely disagree. And others say completely agree. And they are both overconfident. Yeah. Saying that, oh, I have you know eight out of 10 confidence in that. 
Um, because the question is so vague, a year later they would say, yes, I was right because X didn't happen. But X could be anything. Um, you can say that, yes, China surpassed, and no, China didn't at the same time. So it doesn't actually help anything with the decision makers. So forecasting um, is a field where you're not, you know, you're not there to, to get any votes. You're not there to be popular. You're just precisely. there to describe a fact, a, a yes. potential fact. Potential, and yes. a very specific fact. And help with the decision makers, yeah. right? Um, you want to give the decision makers, this could be you know, companies, this could be uh, CEOs, this could be politicians, this could be the public, to see both uh, the likelihood of certain things happening and the consequences of those things happening. Uh, something might be a low, low, low probability event, but the consequences of that could be such that we would need to avoid that at all costs, right? Nuclear war is a great example. <laughs> the, the probability is extremely small, but it's large enough because it's not zero. Mm -hmm. The only acceptable one is zero. zero. Uh, And if it is more than zero, you need to take into account, thus we have mad and all other things, and then you put proliferation and all that kind of concerns, right? So those two things, the, something happening, the likelihood of something happening, and the consequences of that thing happening or not happening. So are, what, what about the likelihood of uh, Erdogan after the border borders open again for him to use the same card, a bargaining power card with the Syrian refugees? The likelihood of him actually flooding Europe with refugees is not very high because compared to last year's, it has never happened. Exactly, right. There uh, we go. I, we I, have I, an answer. answer. We, we have, became a forecaster <laughs> today. But, we have but, an answer. But again, what you need to do is you need to put a number to that. Yeah. Not likely is what? You know, is it what, 20%? 40%? 45%? 40%? But anything under, the, under 70%, then we can relax. <laughs> but that, you know, 70% is not going to happen. Is 30% an acceptable risk? Yeah. Okay, so it's about right? acceptable and non-acceptable risk then. Exactly. And that would change depending on the context, on the person, you know, uh, on, on the specific circumstances. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, my suggestion to, to, to you and also, also to the listeners is that if someone is very confidently making uh, projections, anything beyond, say, 18 months, um, you take that with a like a huge grain of salt, you know. Um, most of it is just uh, empty verbiage. So you have to look at the the sort of co um, consistency before that in terms of the exact exact same things occurring. Exactly. The, this is what we call a base rate, right? In, in, in forecasting, this, this is coming from uh, you know heuristics and biases work with Ben Kahneman and, and, and Tversky and others, uh, is the fact that, you know, what you first need to do is to look at the base rate. How often these things happen? And then you start moving from there. That's one sort of trick to, to make better forecasts. Like, you know, the classic example I use in, in training in, in the market with others is about, uh, you describe a situation about two of your friends getting married and how happy yeah. they are in the, in, the, in the wedding. And then you ask people. So, what is the likelihood of them divorcing in the next five years? Right. People go, like, oh, that's not going to happen. Da, 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 da. And then you look at the, uh, that, that country's divorce rate, 60% in the first five years, 50%. Uh, you go, like, right, they have 50-50 you know, chance that they're going to divorce. Um, but you, know, you do not take that base rate when you're making that prediction because you focus on, on the one single issue. Uh, but you might, you, you're more likely wrong than right. Um, so... You start with a base rate. You start how often these things uh, uh, happen. 
and and then you sort of change and certain things there are no examples of yeah no nuclear wars so what is our uh place we don't know we can start thinking about other things that we can use okay but again, this is, this <laughs> we'd love to discuss this more and i've uh and luckily i've had the pleasure of discussing this with you many times it's such an interesting yes. topic um and look forward to talking more about that but um Now we've gone through a bit of well, Turkish foreign policy, future yes. NATO-Turkish relations, the NATO as a whole, and also political forecasting. Just as like a final tiny question to wrap it up, we've seen now uh, the past few months since March leadership styles, and you were talking about overconfident forecasters. We've also seen overconfident leaders, um, not always so successful. What? How does that give us a prediction of how the next few months and if there will be second, third waves? How will this affect uh, leadership style? And can you give a forecast for that? And then we'll say thank you. Sure. Um, I think two things are important, at least uh, two determinants of how uh, things would shape up. There is increasing work being done on it. State capacity, number one. Uh, and, and, and through the state capacity, leadership quality seems to be a, a key determinant, but particularly mm-hmm. state capacity. A key determinants in, 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 in what countries deal with uh, COVID-19 more successfully compared to the others. Um, uh, what I would predict is, is countries with um, uh, low state capacity, but leaders that are sort of power hungry mm-hmm. uh, would uh, fare worse than countries that are either have high state capacity or leaders that are more, um, what we would say, that have practical wisdom, phronesis, Aristotle, right? um, that are not sort of populist authoritarian um, leaders. One would assume that authoritarian uh, leaders would have a better uh, shot at controlling things, mm-hmm. but that's actually exactly not the case. The countries that are successful are countries like uh, Japan, like Taiwan, like South Korea, um, uh, are the ones that have high state capacity, uh, high trust between society and the government, yeah. um, and and capable leaders that are not uh, me, me, me all the time. Uh, and, and when you have leaders that are that centralized power uh, uh, around them, that have low state capacity and low trust between the, between the, between the public and the government, Uh, we would see worse outcomes. And, and you know, one last sort of perhaps prediction. Uh, I do not really foresee any sort of going back to normal anytime soon until we have a safe, uh, widely available vaccine being developed. Um, I wouldn't put that being developed and widely available that enable people to travel again and, and have concerts and stuff like that um, before March, April of next year, earliest, if we are lucky. So, um, sorry to say, but you know, this sort of limits and 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 so what is, in terms of how how we can travel, who we can meet, all that kind of thing, would be here to say at least next summer. Oh, well, uh, I wish we could have ended on a bit more positive tone, but, <laughs> but we love well, the realistic. We, we love it. It's better with so the realistic. We're, we're masks, yeah. You know? That's so, uh, stay outside wearing masks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. Thank again you so for much. Joining us. Yeah, bye.